Welcome to the College Park Church of Christ Sermon Series Podcast. This sermon was recorded at the College Park Church of Christ in the Conroe Porter area. Join us for worship on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday at 7 p.m. Thanks for studying the Word of God with us. I appreciate the opportunity given to me to stand before you and preach a portion of uh, God, or teach you a portion of God's Word. Um, this has been a study that I've been doing, uh, in my personal study, and one that I was found very interesting. Um, as you see, the title of my slide is The Prodigal, or Prodigal, uh, Finding the Way Home, out of Luke chapter 15. That's the, in my mind, that's the, the, the message of the chapter in a way. Um, I've always, I saw this picture and it reminded me of kind of how I viewed this chapter. I see it, what I thought very clearly until I started doing more research into it and I realized what I see, there's gaps and pieces missing and even at that, the, th- the image that I think I see is not clear. Um, I found some clarity, I believe, in kind of this study and I hope that I can provide some clarity to you as well if you struggle to understand this chapter, um, maybe add a different light to maybe something you know already, but I hope the study is at least impactful to you. We're going to do kind of an expository type study this morning over this chapter. We're going to go ahead and get started because um, we've got a lot of information to go through, but I want to start with the fact that Jesus, throughout his ministry, taught people in various ways. But one of his favorite ways of doing teaching was to talk in parables. Now, parables were things that were stories, and I can show you the definitions that I found, were stories that were fictitious in nature, generally, um, that illustrated a moral attitude or a religious principle. Uh, That's the Webster's definition of that. Uh, The biblical parable of the the Good Samaritan. That's a, a story, a fictitious story, that gave some ideas of what a religious idea was, or a religious moral idea. Um, The Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Bible Theology defines it a little differently. It says it was a story, the story in, in a parable is a window which a larger reality is is depicted. So it's a story that shows a much bigger picture in the real world. Um, Jesus' narrative parables are probably best understood as extended metaphors. The story is a window through which a larger reality is depicted. Understanding the messages of a parable is more than identifying its one point or its point, though many parables do have a focal point that is reinforced by the parable as a whole. In order to let the parable have its full impact, we need to see the larger reality in a new way through the parable story. That's a lot of words, but basically what he's saying is that the story in the parable gives you an idea of, of a maybe an issue that's going on that he doesn't want to say directly because he's talking to a large group of people, or it's a story that has implications to a bigger picture, like the kingdom of God is like those type of situations. But just like the biblical uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, the focal point, what is the focal point of that? There is, a, there is a point. There is a focal point. What is it? 
love your neighbor, right? That's, that's the principle. Now, you can dive into it and look up and see all the different pieces to it, but what's the main concept? Love your neighbor, right? And you see that throughout the depiction of the story, and you see the reality of what neighbor is, of what reality of what a neighbor is through the story. The Samaritan is somebody who people didn't like as Jews, right? So neighbor now takes on a whole different light. It's a new way through the parable story. I'm using Good Samaritan over and over again, but we're not talking about the Good Samaritan today. I wanted to lay down the idea of what a parable was and what it was used for. It was a story to depict a real problem that needed to be fixed or an image of something to come. Now, Luke chapter 15 starts this way. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying. Now, we're going to start right here by defining some things here because the background lays out a picture for what these parables that we're about to read are about. If you look at this, the people that Jesus is sitting down to eat with were tax collectors and sinners. And the people that are complaining are Pharisees and scribes. So you've got two different types of people in this environment. You've got Sinners, the worst of the worst type of people. And you've got the Pharisees and scribes who considered, them the, considered themselves the religious elite, the good of the good, if you will. And those are the two types of people in this story that start out here. And Jesus starts into these parables. I brought up bringing, bringing to mind Matthew chapter 19 because this is kind of how I picture Uh, This situation happening, Jesus is sitting down to eat with these tax collectors and sinners just like he was with when he uh, got Matthew to become one of his disciples. So that Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in a tax office and he said to him, follow me. He arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Now this story happens a little bit prior to what's happening in Luke 15. But I kind of picture it the same way, happening the same way. Jesus is sitting down with some people and these tax collectors and these sinners, just people that are associates of these people, are sitting with him. Why does that matter? Why is that, why is that even a thing? Pharisees saw it and they said this to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is that even a, why is that a question? Why is that a thing? I can go to a restaurant and sit next to somebody it doesn't mean everything about them I agree with, right? I mean, you can do that. Well, the tradition was if you sat down and ate a meal with people, you condoned their actions. You agreed with them. You gave that implication. Not that it was true by any means, but that was the image that was portrayed by that to these religious elites. So if you're going to sit down with anybody, you better be sitting down with Pharisees and scribes and religious people because those are the people you need to be associating with. Your reputation matters. Ooh. Okay. 
And so he's, his, the, the, the Pharisees are complaining, this man receives sinners and eats with them. You know, these tax collectors were very curious people. These tax collectors were Jews. They weren't just Roman people that came into the, the, the land, uh, you know, out of the country. These were Jewish people that took on the role of collecting taxes for the Roman government. They were hated. <laughs> we don't like taxes in our country, but we pay them and we're okay with it and all that stuff. But these taxes that were imp- imp- imposed on these Jews, they had a dictatorship, if, an emperor, who was saying, you have to pay me money. I don't, first off, the Jews didn't like that person, the fact that they came in and, and conquered them, right? You've got that problem. Then on top of that, a tax collector was a Jew your fellow brother who's now telling you, you owe me money so that I can pay the guy that took you over. So you're going to hate that guy even more than you hate the emperor, right? You know, taxes in those days were about 1% to 3%. Love that, wouldn't you? <laughs> one, to two percent, 1% to 3% or so of, your, of everything you have was taxed. That was what the Roman government wanted. But here's the crazy part about these tax collectors. They got to eat too. They get a salary, but they want a little bit more. So these men were a lot more greedy. They said, oh, the tax is 10%. I'm going to keep 7. 3% goes to Rome, 7 goes to me. Or it's 20% this year because I don't like you. <laughs> So these guys were not the greatest people and were hated. And these are the people that Jesus is sitting with. This is, these are the people that the Jewish elite are seeing and saying, this guy condones their actions. This guy agrees with them. This guy likes these people. All of those statements start going through these Pharisees' minds. And so they say this statement, this man receives sinners and eats with them. But Jesus goes straight into some parables with that complaint. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he, until he has found it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents over the, than over ninety-nine just people who need no repentance. That's the first thing he says. How does that have anything to do with what he's talking about or what, he, what has happened previous to this? Other than sinners and repentance. We'll get to it. But I want to show you that he starts with this parable and says, you know, look at you guys. Look at you guys. You got, let's say one of you has sheep. You have sheep. You have 100 sheep. One of them goes missing. You have 100 sheep. One of them goes missing. What are you going to do if that happens? I want you to think about your job, if you have a, have a secular job. If something happened at your job and a mistake happened, what mountains would you move to fix that mistake so that you don't lose your job? What mountains would you not move? That's what he's saying here. Which one of you which man of you, if you had a hundred sheep, wouldn't find a way to fix the problem 
The man had a hundred sheep. He lost one. He drops everything, everything to find it. Leaves the 99 that he has. He could have just been like, ah, 99% is good enough. You know, I work in uh, construction, and one of my roles as in construction is to create estimates, construction estimates and budgets. A situation like this has happened to me before, where in my job, something that is my livelihood, again, a man has 100 sheep. In my livelihood, I made a mistake. I left off about $345,000 out of a bid. <laughs> The total project was only $2 million, so it's a big chunk of that project. Man, I was up late at night. I was worried. I thought I was going to lose my job. Somehow I was able to finagle away and figure that out. Talk the owner out of the $350,000 item. <laughs> but I moved everything. I did everything I possibly could to fix this problem because it was important. I didn't tell, I told my wife about it. I fixed the problem. This is awesome. I rejoiced with my friends. Some of them. I was happy. And Jesus said there's greater joy in heaven over a sinner who repents than the elation you feel when you fix a mistake like that. When you find a lost sheep. You know, one sheep out of a hundred is about one percent, right? One percent. He lost one percent of his property. And he was ecstatic about it. Not about, it is exactly one percent, not about one percent. CCB laughing over there. <laughs> about one percent. He lost one, and he was ecstatic that he found the one. Okay, let's move on. That's, that's the first parable. That's the first piece of this parable. The next, next piece of it. Or what woman, having ten coins, if she lose one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, with me for I have found the peace which I have lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Sounds like the exact same stories we heard before, right? It's a little bit different on this one. Just slightly different. The percentages are a little different, right? That's not the only difference. You know, historically, when a marriage happened in Jesus' time frame, in the, in, in the ancient times, one of the things that would happen was that there would be an intricate service, kind of an intricate service of, of the wife being, uh, the, the woman being handed over from her parents. Kind of, it's very similar to our wedding rituals that we do today and the ceremonies that we do today, but a little bit more intricate. One of those things that would happen was there would be ten coins that the groom had. And what would happen is that that wife, that woman that was going to be a wife would have her cupped hands and that groom would put those coins in there and the idea was it was to the, the, the women were taught that the man that gives you ten coins these ten coins is the man that loves you 
the man that loves you. Well, these were arranged marriages, and if this is the first time that these people have met, then how can you tell me that this person loves me if this is the first time? The idea was it symbolized the fact that God would make that marriage grow and that love would grow to the full extent of the ten coins. The value, extreme value. That was the concept of that. So the wife held on to those because that love meant something. It would be so important to her that she was hold on to them. They, she, they, would, use, they would also make a, a garland type thing that they would, they would wear, they could wear if they chose to. Because how, that's how precious that was to them. And it says, what woman having ten silver coins lost one? Now the implication of losing one of those was pretty crazy. It either meant that you did not love your husband, you did not respect your husband, you did not any of those things, or you had stepped out. So the implication of losing one was pretty dire for a woman in those days. What woman, if she lost one, would not search her whole house to find it? It meant something. It had extreme value to her. Let me also talk to you about it in a different light. Sorry, moving, moving past this. She rejoiced with her friends when she found it. <laughs> I, think, I think every woman in here would, given the other option of what it would imply. Greater joy in heaven over a sinner's repentance than that wife being vindicated, right? There's also another aspect of it. That's 10 coins. That'd be like you losing 10% of your wealth. That'd be like you losing, let's say you put all your money into investments and 10% of it was gone like that. That'd be a hit. That would hurt. You're planning on retiring on this and you lost 10% of it. Just You lost it. Painful. So Jesus has upped the value here. There was one lost sheep, 1%. Okay. You know, the Pharisees are probably sitting here saying, understand, absolutely, agree with that. Yep, lost a sheep, yep, got to find it. Lost a coin, yeah, that looks real bad. Yeah, I lost a coin, man, I lost some of my wealth, found it. That is awesome. I'm agreeing with you here. Absolutely agree. Then he hits him with this. He says, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a portion of the goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. You know the word prodigal son, it means the word prodigal itself, it means recklessly wasteful. That's what the word means. So he went out and wasted his possessions with reckless wastefulness. Man had two sons. 
And that one of those sons, one of those sons asked for his inheritance, basically. The younger son didn't want to wait for his father to die to get his inheritance. He wanted it now. And when he had it, he took it to a far country, went to a far country, ran away, left, and wasted it. I want to talk to you about, real quick, some pieces of this that I think will interest you. The idea of giving an inheritance had some relation to the Old Testament law. In In Deuteronomy chapter 21... What, sorry, not Deuteronomy chapter 1. Yeah, 21 verse 17. I thought I had those flipped. Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 17. There were some very clear laws and indications of what to do with your inheritance. One of the first things was the older person in your family, the, older, the, the oldest brother, the oldest child, sorry, would get double what everybody else got. That was the first thing. And then, so with two kids, you would have two-thirds going to the older and a third going to the younger, right? So the, the third that belonged to the younger and the two-thirds that belonged to the older weren't supposed to be given until death, until that man died. But this young man had the audacity to go to his dad, who was still alive and kicking, and say, hey, give me what you owe me. I can't wait for you to die. I want my money now. I want my possessions now. And not only that, he did something that was kind of illegal. He sold it off. Illegal in the Jewish community. He sold off the land in this story. He sold off the inheritance, which was not supposed to happen. And he took that money and went to a far country. The word far country meant something to these people as well. You know, a far country was Babylon. A far country was Assyria. A far country was Egypt. A far country, you get what I'm saying? Places of exile. Places you don't want to be. Places you don't want to go. And this young man said, I'm going to do something. I'm going to be greedy. I'm going to take all of the money that's owed to me. I'm going to Spend it all, and then I'm going to not only do that, but I'm going to leave God's people, and I'm going to go away from where God is, go away from you to a place of exile on purpose. (laughs) Sounds like a pretty terrible guy. Horrible. You know, in reality, what Jesus was doing, he was painting a picture He's painting a picture of what was the worst of Israel. The worst of the Jewish people. The Jewish people did this over and over again to God. With the Babylonian Empire. Right? They were in exile. They followed all these other things. And that's what led to their exile. was Doing all the things that made them not follow after God. They chose to go away from God. Chose to be reckless. 
And again, everybody's looking at that saying, yep, yep. Guy lost his son. Yep, terrible. That's not good. 50% lost his son. Everything wrong. Yep, look at those tax collectors. Look at those sinners. Look at those Jewish people that aren't doing what God wants them to do. He lost 50% of his sons, but man, those, at least he's got the other 50, right? He's, at least he's got the other one, the, the good one, the compliant one, one doing exactly what I need him to do. When the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned, I'm skipping a piece of this. I'm skipping, the piece I'm skipping is talking about uh, what the younger son did in that faraway country. But a quick synopsis, he wasted it away with uh, living that was not appropriate, was not good. And at the end of the day, he joined himself to a member of that faraway country, and, he is, and then he's feeding pigs to Jews. That was horrible. You don't, you don't do that. You don't touch pigs. It's unclean. And not only, not only that, I want, you wanted to eat the same things that the pigs ate. Again, you don't do that. So these Jews are hearing this. That Man, this guy is horrible. Terrible person. Terrible sinner. Everybody's nodding their head, yeah. Amen, I agree with all that. And then the son comes to himself. He realizes what's going on, right? Jesus is painting a really detailed picture throughout all this. He's building this picture. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robes and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. You know, a point I want to bring out is the father went out, ran out, ran to him. He was looking for him, ran to him to receive him. He went out to get him. You see the similarity to the other two stories? He went out. Yeah. The son went to a faraway country, but whenever he started coming back, the father ran to him. And then he rejoiced, just like the other two. They rejoiced. He rejoiced, and he said, bring out the fatted calf. Let's throw a celebration. Let's throw a party. Because my son who is dead is back. This is the joy. This is the kind of joy that God and the angels feel when a sinner repents. Interestingly enough, it doesn't say this piece in this story. All it says is, let's celebrate. I just find it interesting because I have a feeling that God, that Jesus wanted us to realize this is the amount of emotion and love and value that God has. The same as a son coming back from the dead. The same as a man losing Something that is more precious than anything that you could own. And building that relationship again with that child.
We could have stopped there, right? Pharisees, yep, that's it. Cool story, nice little bow. He comes back. But that's not where Jesus stops. And now his older son was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. He calls, called one of the servants and asked, what are these things, what these things meant? And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, the father came out and pleaded with him. About this time, I think the Pharisees are going, oh, oh. The scribes are going, oh, man. (laughs) I've agreed with you up until this point, but what are you saying now? The good of the good, the best of the best, cream of the crop. Eldest brother, I didn't do anything wrong. He's angry that the father threw a party for this horrible, horrible person. And I find it interesting that Jesus builds this picture because these two parables before, she shows value, shows value, shows value. Then he tells this story about two sons, shows value, and then he hits them with, but the older son was angry. a hit out of left field, isn't it? They weren't ready for that. Who's the them do you think that Jesus was talking to? Do you think it was the tax collectors and the sinners that were sitting there? I'm sure, like I said at the very beginning, parables had multiple reinforcing points to a focal point. But who do you think the parables of Luke 15 were addressed to? Was it to the tax collectors and the sinners? Or was it to the Pharisees and the scribes that were complaining? The older brother was the Pharisees and the scribes that were complaining about a person who repented, who lived a horrible life and is trying to change their life, who has made the decision to change their life. These people are complaining about them. These people have an issue with them. Because they don't fit the mold. They're not the right type of people. Jesus, why are you associating with these tax collectors and these, these sinners? Why are you condoning their actions? Why are you being associated with these kind of people? That's not the people. Those aren't the right kind of people. Let me show you what kind of people you are. Let me show you what kind of people you are. elder brother was angry he was mad and the father went out to him the father went out to the guy that was lost too Jesus doesn't use words randomly 
that older brother was just as lost. The problem was he didn't know it. He didn't know it. What he knew is I keep the rules. I keep the rules. I do everything you tell me to do. I keep those commandments to the letter. I do everything right. You owe me a party because I do everything right the way you want it done. I do it perfectly. Never once have I complained about it. It's not fair that you throw a party for this. I deserve the party. I deserve the accolades. I deserve the... I'm perfect. He answered his father, Lo, these many years I've served you, I've never transgressed your commandments at any time. Any time. Man, that's a bold statement. And yet you never gave me a young goat. I'll lower it from a bull to a goat. You never even did that for me. That I might be married with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours, not my brother, your son, who has devoured your livelihood, all of it evidently, with harlots, you killed a fatted calf for him. See the extremes this man goes to? He's so angry. He's so mad. He doesn't see anything because he's so mad. He doesn't see what he does have. This story is about him. This parable is about him. This whole chapter is about him. It's about the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus is talking to them in a very direct way. It's a story, but <laughs> pretty sure they got the picture. It's what you would call an elder brother syndrome. I fell in line. I looked the way you wanted me to. I act the way you wanted me to. I spoke the way you wanted me to. I did everything the way you wanted to, me to. I deserve this. I deserve a party. I deserve this. And I need it with my friends, not with you, my father, who is the one throwing the party for the young man. It's a, it's a party for the young man by the father. No, I want a party with my friends separate and away from you. He's doing a whole lot of looking at what is wrong with this guy and not seeing anything wrong with himself. I've kept all your commandments. Every single one. Every single one. You got up at 5.30 when I need you to get up at 5.30 without complaining. Did you? Really? He wasted all your livelihood. Really, all of it. Because legally, all he had to do was give him a third. He couldn't see it. He couldn't see anything because he was so mad. The Pharisees and, and scribes couldn't see what Jesus was doing. He wasn't condoning the actions of the tax collectors and the sinners. He was not condoning that at all. 
The father never once condoned the younger man's actions. Never once did he condone the lifestyle that he lived. Never once did he say, this was okay for you to do. Go sow your wild oats. He did not ever say that. What he did not do as well was hold it over his head. The older brother wanted to do that. And that's exactly what he did. The father said to him and said to the older son, Son, you are always with me. And all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make Mary and be glad for your brother. Your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. He never left the presence of the Father. It's amazing how people who grow up religious end up being the most cynical and self-righteous people in the world. incredible how that works you've never left the presence of the father you've never not known the grace of God you've never not known the fact that he forgives your sins you've never not known the fact that he loves you yet you continue to hate people you continue to have self-righteousness think you're better than everybody else can't believe they're doing that. Can't believe they're wearing that. How dare they? That's not appropriate. Can't believe they said those words. Maybe they did. Did. Not do. Did. Is that a reason to hold it over their head? Correct it, yes. But is that a reason to hold it over their head? No. Because you know, you've never left the presence of the Father. There's no reason for you to be cynical about it. There's no reason for you to not know the grace and forgiveness found by him. Those Pharisees and scribes should have known the grace and love of God. All they knew was the severity, or all they held on to was the severity. talk about this inheritance he lays out three different things here but specifically or two things here he talks about the fact that he's with him all the time the father does but then he talks about his inheritance he says all that I have is yours you know I read that statement to just mean you could have had a party anytime you wanted I never stopped you that's how I've always read it but looking at the inheritance laws this literally meant everything I have now is yours he got what he wanted. He spent all of it. What's left is not his. It's yours. You have all of it left. I don't have, I'm not dividing it with him now. He already got his piece. He wasted it, though. He wasted it. Guess what, the, 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 guess what happens with that younger brother, the guy that wasted his inheritance? Guess what he doesn't get? Any more inheritance. <laughs> he doesn't get it anymore. 
All of it belongs to you. When I die, you can throw as many parties as you want. (laughs) But your brother's back. All of this belongs to you. That's all the details. All of this belongs to you. We'll work that out. But right now, right now, my son, your brother, 50% of what is the most important thing to me ever is back. That is worth celebrating. That is worth throwing a little party, spending a couple of hundred dollars throwing a party. It doesn't mean anything in the grand inheritance that you own everything else left. It means nothing. It's minuscule to show support and love and celebrate the value of him and his repentance. You know, as parents, we like to pray. We want to pray that our kids never be the prodigal son. As a prayer, I that my son and my kids are never that way. Never have to deal with the, the problems and the issues that come with that. How often do I pray that they're not the older brother? How often do I pray that they don't be self-righteous? That they hold things over people's heads. That they hide hatred and bitterness and sickness in their hearts because people can't see it, but they can hold on to it. How often do I pray that that not be the case? The younger son, he has to live with the shame of what he did. There are people in this audience that live with the shame of their past. I hope there's no elder brothers that look at them and say, I never did that. I'm good. I pray we don't have that. And if we do, Fix it. There's application out of this I hope you've seen. But I want to summarize. The first two parables have been about the value of a soul. That's easy to see. The value of a person. There's value in that sheep. There was value in that coin. And lastly, there was value in that son, extreme value in that son. There's value in a soul. Don't write anybody off. We have a habit of writing people off. Don't do it. Celebrate repentance. Celebrate repentance. 
these tax collectors and sinners that were sitting at Jesus' feet, hearing these same parables, man, I need to change my life. Man, this God values me. I need to change. And they're making that step by sitting there with Jesus and hearing this stuff. There's a change. We should be celebrating repentance when we see people changing their lives. Celebrate it. Not pointing out where they're still wrong. Because we can. Because I'm so much better than you at this. That's great. Good job. Let me give you a pat on the back. You did great. Some people struggle to get to that point. Let them get there. Guide them. Help them. Teach them. But don't hold it over their head and say, this is where you're still wrong and failing. Celebrate their repentance. Celebrate. Compliance does not mean faithfulness. That elder brother was compliant. He did it. Checked it off. I'm at church Sunday morning. I'm at church Wednesday night. I take the Lord's Supper. I do this. I participate. I look this way. I do this. Compliance does not mean faithfulness. If you show value to somebody and celebrate their repentance, they're not going to just be compliant because you're supposed to. You're going to foster a relationship that creates faithfulness to the gospel, to God, to the things that make you, you as a Christian. Compliance does not equal faithfulness. Matthew 9 Verse 13 says, I desire that you would know mercy over sacrifice. I'm paraphrasing. (laughs) ESV paraphrase. (laughs) No mercy over sacrifice. It's not about checking off the list and doing the things. As the older brother, if you are that in this situation, show mercy, not Hold to the law. Hold to these points. Make sure you do. Last but not least, don't have the elder brother syndrome. Don't be self-righteous. Don't think you have everything put together. Don't think that you're perfect. Don't act like you're perfect, even if you know you're not perfect. Don't act like it. Know that you have your flaws and be willing to say, I am wrong too. I have my mistakes. Don't let self-righteousness take over where you can't see the beauty of God's creation and the souls that that are saved because you're too cynical because you're too caught up in your own self-righteousness, like the Pharisee and the tax collector that went to pray. And the Pharisee says, glad I'm not like that tax collector. Don't do that. Instead, 
focus here. Focus here. For this, my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Don't worry about that. Worry about the fact that a lost soul is saved. A sinner has been redeemed. God's creation is back where it belongs. With God, in the presence of God, in his community of Christians who celebrate repentance, who value everybody's souls, who live to serve God and to work to grow together. If you find that you're the prodigal son that needs to repent, you're the younger brother, make your wish known. We can help you with that. We can start your walk back to the Father. Back to the Father who's ready to reach out to you and run to you. We can help you get there. If you find you're the elder brother that's struggling, you're the religious person. You're the one that's the Christian, but you're hiding everything in your heart. You know, if you push this story out a little bit further, let's just push it a little bit further, and the Pharisees are the older brother, the tax collectors are the, is the younger brother, and Jesus is the father. You know, that story stops after the father says what he says, but let's play that story out like it happened in real life. Those Pharisees killed Jesus out of hatred. So in essence, that older brother killed that father out of hatred and anger. Don't choose that route. Don't choose that route of, I'm, how dare he say these things? How dare Christ put me in my place? <laughs> Don't do that. See the fault and hit your knees and say, God, forgive me. God, forgive me for being a self-righteous person. And help me be the person that values people, everyone, and celebrates their repentance. If you find you're one of either class, please come forward as we stand and sing. Thanks for joining our Sermon Series podcast today. For more, check us out on YouTube or come worship with us on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings.